We've uh, witnessed a lot together as we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians over the last several months, and we're getting near the end, and chapter 15, which we're going to be looking at today, builds to a sort of crescendo. 1 Corinthians 15 is a famous chapter in the Bible. It's one of the few passages in the Bible that uh, has a pretty commonly known name, at least within the church by many people, uh, and it's kind of earned this name for itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter, and 1 Corinthians 15 is the, do you know what it is? The resurrection chapter. A few of you knew what it was. It's the resurrection chapter. And over the course of 1 Corinthians, we've talked about divisions in the church that took place because some didn't think that Paul was a good enough apostle to be considered their teacher. We've seen how they turned a blind eye and even gave a tacit approval to various kinds of sin and gross immorality, like a man sleeping with his stepmom. Paul had to deal with believers taking one another to court. He had to teach them about divorce and marriage and sexuality because some apparently thought that they were so spiritual that they shouldn't have sex with their husbands while it seemed some husbands were making the excuse that they could have sex with whoever they wanted because what really mattered was their spirituality, not what they did with their bodies. He had to warn them about idolatry and food offered to idols, teach them not to publicly shame one another, rebuke them for creating classes of people while they were taking the Lord's Supper, and teach them what real spirituality is and how to use spiritual gifts appropriately in the church family. And it might seem that a question about the resurrection was unrelated to the rest of these topics, just an addendum on the end of the book, but that's not the case. In fact, this is what Paul has been building to. It is the crescendo to which the whole book is pointing. There was a crack in the foundation of their theology that was leading them to shakiness on all kinds of issues in their lives and in their community of faith. And Paul was about to fix the crack. If you decide on a whim this afternoon that you're gonna take a road trip and you're going to head to Maine for a few days, which direction would you go? North, north or northeast a little bit, right? You'd head that way. If you're going to go to North Carolina, would you go the same direction? No, which way would you go? You'd head south. And what about if you wanted to travel to Colorado? Which way would you go? You'd go west. Your destination determines your direction, doesn't it? Where you're going determines how you're going to get there, what you're going to do, what direction you will head along the way. You're going to choose a route based on where you're headed. In other words, the end of your trip affects everything about how you'll get to where you're going. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul demonstrates that the same thing is true for your Christian life. Perhaps much of the sin in the Corinthian church was based on the fact that some of them had decided to change their destination. They had the wrong destination in mind. They no longer believed the gospel as it had been preached to them. Well, they still used spiritual language. You could still hear them talking about Jesus in various contexts, but they were still in danger of denying the heart of the good news. And Paul states the problem explicitly at verse 12. Now, he says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
So the problem wasn't simply that they made some missteps, some boo-boos, had some misunderstandings in their morality along the way. The problem was that they were in danger of going a completely different direction than the gospel because they had changed their understanding of what their destination was. And in verses 1 through 11, Paul reminds them of the gospel he preached, what they had originally believed. He says this, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Notice how Paul says that they were being saved. So often we think of salvation as a ticket. By believing something, by saying a prayer, you purchase that ticket. But here, Paul describes this as a process or as a destination. You are being saved. Salvation will be complete one day when Jesus returns and you are resurrected. If that's your destination, you are being saved as long as you're headed that direction. That's why Paul says, if you hold fast to the word that I preached. That word was that Jesus died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, all according to to the scriptures. This was of first or most importance, and he emphasizes the resurrection by pointing out all of those to whom Christ had appeared after God raised him from the dead. If a real resurrection from the dead was not important, why would Jesus have appeared to all these people? Last of all, Jesus appeared to Paul himself. Paul says, as to one untimely born, and the original, uh, the original word referred to a miscarriage or a baby born at the wrong time so that it wasn't fully developed. And eventually the term came to describe something that was uh, a monstrosity or freakish. And it's doubtful that Paul was just being self-deprecating here. In likelihood, this was a term that the Corinthians had used for him because they didn't think he was very impressive like the other apostles. And he adopts it here to indicate that Yes, Jesus did indeed appear to him at a later date than the others, and yes, he was the most undeserving of all of the apostles because he had persecuted the church, but Jesus showed up anyway through no worth of his own. And Paul was called as an apostle and he worked harder than all of the others because of the grace of God that had been shown to him. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus had set an entirely new course for the life of the apostle Paul. It had changed his destination and as a result, it had changed the direction of his life. And call him what they wanted, 
a little freak, a monster, a diminutive apostle among the others. He was what he was, an apostle by God's grace. The resurrected Jesus showed up and set a new destination for Paul. And it was the preaching of the good news that Jesus died and that he lives again through the lips and the life of the apostle Paul by which the Corinthians had originally believed. And that was and it is today the only gospel that there is. No matter if it was preached by Peter or James or John or Paul or Stephen or by you, that is the only gospel that exists. Jesus died and he was raised from the dead. And so Paul came to know that the resurrection is the destination and it changed the direction of his life. And so it had for the Corinthians as well. But they were in danger of changing directions because they had become confused about the destination. And many people today are still confused about the destination. There are those who are sometimes labeled as progressive Christians, though I think there is no such thing, who have given up belief in the real resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, they've given up belief in the real resurrection of believers as well. They might teach that Jesus' resurrection is a metaphor, or it's mythical, it's symbolic, and that it still holds great meaning for our lives, even though it wasn't real in the sense of that it really happened, but in so doing, they've changed the entire gospel. They've changed the destination, and so their direction has changed. Their churches are infiltrated with the tolerance and affirmation of all kinds of sin, just as the church in Corinth was. There are some who hold to a ticket-to-heaven belief in Jesus. Their faith is an abstraction. It's vague. It's an insurance policy against the future. But their lives bear no witness of belief in Christ that has actually altered the direction of their lives. They act as if spirituality and their thought life and their behavior are two totally unrelated things or as if they can't really be expected to overcome sin in their lives. They're like the spiritual people of Corinth. They use religion as a mask for their immorality and for their guilt before God. Church, today I want to tell you this, that you should be confident in the resurrection. That you should walk with confidence that Jesus rose and that you will rise as well because your destination determines your direction. And I wanna look at the confidence that Christ's resurrection should give us. And the first confidence that we have from the resurrection of Jesus is that we will be resurrected as well. You will be raised because Christ has been raised. You will be raised because Christ has been raised. Even Christians often have funny ideas about the resurrection. I hear more believers speak about dying and going to heaven than of Jesus' return and the resurrection. And while the Bible does briefly address that when a believer dies, they are in the presence of the Lord, that's not how the story ends. It's certainly not the emphasis of the gospel of Jesus. In fact, there's not much in the Bible to tell us what that in-between state will be like. We just know that to be absent from the body for a believer is to be present from the Lord. That's about all we know. Instead, the New Testament emphasizes emphasizes that we will be resurrected. We will be raised again. God's intention is not to make a new plan, one in which he abandons the earth and just takes our spirits, immaterial spirits, to be in a spiritual place forever. That's more akin to pagan ideas of the afterlife or to new age spirituality. 
No, God's plans have not been thwarted, and they remain the same. He created the world so that we might know him as we learn to take care of it and govern it with him. And the story of the Bible is not one of God abandoning that plan as if sin somehow conquered God. The story of the Bible remains the same. It's a story of God's victory over sin and of his renewal and recreation of a new heavens and a new earth governed with him by his resurrected people. If as some people seem to think the dead aren't really going to be raised, then not even Jesus was raised from the dead. If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised, and your faith is worthless. You're stuck in your sin. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, as they were saying, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, or it's hollow, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Follow Paul's argument here. If as some people in the Corinthian church thought, believers will not be resurrected bodily, but will assume some kind of spiritual form, why would God have raised Jesus physically? That doesn't make any sense. If the dead are not raised, then Jesus was not raised either. He is a man. So if men are not raised from the dead, neither was he. But if Jesus wasn't raised, their faith falls apart because the foundation of that faith is that Jesus was raised. That's the proof that he wasn't just another false messiah. It was the guarantee that he has power over death and not some power over death, but he has all power over death. It was the guarantee that he can forgive your sins. So if the dead are not raised, then Jesus wasn't raised and you've just believed a lie about Jesus, which means You're still stuck in your sins. You can't be right with God. And why would you hope in Jesus if he wasn't raised from the dead and couldn't guarantee your forgiveness and resurrection? Why would you hope in a metaphor? That's silly. The progressive church is silly. They base their doctrine on foolish thinking of people because why would you hope in a metaphor? Do you gain something from Jesus in this life that is so good that it's worth having, even if the whole thing is a hoax? No, especially not if you're Paul the Apostle. For Paul, the clear answer was no. He suffered, he went hungry, he was abused, he was hated for Christ. If that's all the gospel gets you in this life and it's just a metaphor, who would continue to hope in that? Why would you want to believe a metaphor like that? But as verse 20 says, Christ has been raised and his resurrection means the defeat of death, including yours. Christ's resurrection means the defeat of death. Look at verses 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. A faith that believes that Jesus died and rose so that I can have some kind of spiritual salvation but not resurrection is some kind of faith But it is not the Christian faith. Christ has been raised as a first fruit. And the image is like the very first wheat or the first corn that becomes ripe. The rest of the field may not yet be ready, but those first plants are indicators that a greater harvest is coming. If you've got a garden or maybe you've got berry bushes in your backyard, you know that you might get the first few berries before the rest are ripe and ready to be picked. And when those first few berries come, it is evidence, it is an indication that a bigger harvest is coming. And that's what Jesus' resurrection is for the believer. It's proof that a bigger harvest is coming. And Paul then switches to the story from, he switches from the metaphor of a a plant or, or of a harvest to the story of the fall of humanity. Because Adam sinned by disobeying God, all creation has been subjected to death. He was like the first fruits of death. But now, Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection for those who believe in him. And just as there is an order to a harvest, there is an order to this. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. Then when Jesus returns, the rest of the harvest will be brought in. That is, all of those who have believed in Christ will be raised from the dead. And then comes the end when all authority, governmental authority, human authority, demonic authority, will be submitted to Jesus, conquered by the victorious king. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so Jesus' lordship over all things will be made plain to all people. And while Paul's emphasis here is on death and resurrection, he does mention the all-encompassing work of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus deals with all the problems that we as humans face. We know that his death and resurrection mean the forgiveness of sins and our reconciliation with God, which is one of the primary problems we have faced since the fall of Adam, that we are cut off from God and Jesus' death and resurrection deals with that. But... His death and resurrection have also dealt with another problem, the hostile forces of the enemy, demonic forces and satanic forces that influence our world and they oppose God. And finally, he deals the death blow to death itself. In other words, Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of the end for every kind of evil in humanity and in human systems and in government and for demonic powers that are often behind them. And if you give up the resurrection, resurrection, you give up Jesus' victory. If you give up that Jesus was raised and that you'll be raised with him, 
You give up his victory over all of those things. There is no longer a king who is conquered for you. There is no longer any hope that the demonic powers or the evil systems of government of this world will be brought to their knees when Christ returns because you've given up the destination, so you've given up the direction as well. But if you believe in Jesus and his resurrection, you believe that one day the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and all authority and all power will be submitted to Christ and he will be all in all and all evil will be conquered and all of satanic forces will be overcome. And you give up the glory of the end when Jesus will submit all of his reign over sin and spiritual powers and death to the Father and God will be all in all. If there is no resurrection, then we lose out on that victory. But Christ's resurrection means the defeat of death. It means the defeat of even your own death. Paul continues and says that if there is no resurrection, acts done in faith are absurd. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 30 say, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now the bit about being baptized for the dead is notoriously difficult to understand. There may have been some people in Corinth who thought that they could be baptized on behalf of people who were already dead and so secure their salvation, but that seems so contrary to what Paul teaches elsewhere in the scripture that you'd think he would have corrected it. Also, that belief is not found anywhere else in the New Testament nor in early Christian literature. That's unlikely what was going on. It's possible that this is just a reference to the imagery of death and resurrection, that you are baptized and it's a symbol of death. That's what he means by on behalf of the dead, on behalf of your dead self. You're baptized and you're raised with Christ. And so he's talking about the imagery of baptism itself. Whatever it was, Paul is pointing out that if the dead are not raised, their imagery doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but why would he risk his life and suffer for a message that only brought him pain? Fighting with wild beasts at Ephesus is likely metaphorical language for demonic opposition that he faced while he was preaching the good news of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And even if we can't nail down what he was referring to in these instances, the meaning is clear. Why bother with religious practices, with the process of maturing in Christ, or with suffering for the gospel if there is no resurrection? Let's eat and drink because if the resurrection is fake, we're still stuck in our sin, we're separated from God, we're doomed to die, and we may as well enjoy ourselves while we still can. But that is not the gospel. And so Paul tells them this, wake up. He says, wake up from your sleep. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Stop listening to people who deny the resurrection. Don't build your life on the wishy-washy faith of those who want to make it something more palatable to our culture. Then as now, resurrection is not an idea that is in vogue. Sure, people will let you get away with some vague statements about wondering if there's more beyond life, believing in a higher power, thinking that there might be an afterlife, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is not vague. 
It is extremely specific. And if you get specific, people get annoyed, people get upset, but bad company corrupts good morals. Do not listen to them. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised from the dead by the Father. He appeared to the apostles and hundreds of others. He ascended into heaven, and he is returning. When he does, we will rise from the dead. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything else is a fake gospel. It is a false gospel with which Christians should have no fellowship. We must not be wishy-washy about the gospel. It is not unclear. It is not just spiritual in the sense that our contemporary culture uses that word. It is the specific message of what God has done for us and will do for us through Jesus. And when we know the destination... It changes the direction of our lives. Think about it. Paul was willing to suffer and die for the gospel, but only because he believed not only that Jesus was raised from the dead, but that Jesus' resurrection meant that he would one day rise as well. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus will raise you from the dead? Has your faith wandered into the vague spirituality of contemporary culture because that's more palatable to your friends and to your family? Are you listening to people who tell you that what you do right now doesn't matter because we're going to shed these bodies anyway? Bad company corrupts good morals. Failure to hold fast to the true gospel will change the direction of your life because you'll no longer be headed for resurrection you'll no longer be believing in it. Wake up, hold on to the real gospel. It sets the destination so that the direction of your life might be toward salvation. You should be confident in the resurrection because you will be raised since Jesus has been raised. But perhaps you're wondering, like some of those in the Corinthian church, what that resurrection will be like. What kind of body will you have? Maybe this has even created doubts for you because you're thinking, well, I don't, that seems really weird. I mean, I can't even imagine somebody being raised from the dead. What would that even be like? What would that look like? It doesn't seem realistic. It feels like wishful thinking, and you think it's more logical to believe in a disembodied spiritual existence after death. It's apparently what some of the Corinthian believers began to think. They couldn't handle the how of the resurrection, and so they gave up belief in the resurrection entirely. And here's what Paul has to say about that. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory or in brightness. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. For if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
Paul's point here is simple. God can create different kinds of bodies. And it might seem pretty harsh to call someone who has doubts about what the resurrected body could be like a fool, but that's exactly what Paul does. He says, you fool. And he means it in the tradition of the Old Testament. People who refused to acknowledge God in their thinking were called fools. And Paul says, do you think that God is unable to make a body that's beyond your imagination, to make something different? Do you think it's outside God's power to do something that you can't imagine, and so you doubt the resurrection? Then you've also doubted God, and you deserve the title fool. And Paul gives a number of examples of different kinds of bodies and flesh, and he says that they all come from God. And his point is simply that God has already created a number of different kinds of flesh or bodies that have different compositions, different kinds of glory or brightnesses, and maybe the most instructive that he brings up is the seed. Who could imagine that you could plant a seed and get a tree? I mean, we can imagine it because we've seen it, but I bet if before you taught a child where trees come from and you handed them a seed, they would be unable to imagine that that little seed could become an oak tree or any other kind of tree. It seems unthinkable, yet that's how God made it. So while you might not be able to imagine what a resurrected body will be like, free from the effects of sin and death, why should you limit the power of God because of your disbelief? Now get this, and it's one of my favorite parts of this passage. Paul says that what is sown is perishable, that is, our current bodies, but what is raised is imperishable, that is, our resurrected bodies. The image he uses isn't just of coming back to life, but he's talking about a totally different quality of life. When something is perishable, it means that it is in the process of decay. It has an expiration date, doesn't it? That's us. Bad news. We're perishable. We are in the process of decay. They tell us that as soon as you stop growing, you start dying. And so most of us in this room, we're in the process of dying. We're in the process of decay. We're headed that way. Pastor, I came to church to be uplifted this morning. And this is the best you could do. My aching joints, bad back, and insomnia last night were enough to remind me I'm in the process of decay. I didn't need you to do that. I'm sorry, we're getting to the good part, okay? We try to forget that we're decaying. When we've gotten pretty good in our modern Western society, with our medical technology, and our other improvements in the quality of our lives, we've gotten pretty good at helping people to delay their decay. But so far, no one has figured out how to stop it. And so we're dying. You can delay it, but you can't stop it. And we're dying. And most people deal with that by trying to forget it. The gospel offers a better solution. It offers the resurrection. And if perishable means that we're subject to decay, that we're wearing down, then the opposite imperishable means that we will have a kind of an existence that is marked by the continual renewal and the betterment of life. Do you know what this is a musical symbol of? If you can show the, the, the first symbol. You know what that's a musical symbol of? It's pianissimo. It means to play very, very softly. 
And if you can show the next one, this is double forte. It's the opposite. It means to play very loudly. Now, when Paul talks about the resurrection, he doesn't mean that we're going to go from pianissimo to double forte all of a sudden. What he means is something like this. If you can show the next one, who knows what this is? This is a decrescendo. It means that it starts loud and it starts getting quieter and quieter and quieter until it terminates. It's done. And this is our life. We start loud, don't we? We come out crying, and then things get worse and worse until you die. I mean, that's life. And Paul says that the resurrection is not like going from pianissimo to double forte. It's like going from decrescendo, and if you can show the next one, to an eternal crescendo. That it just keeps getting better and better and better and better that the imperishable will put on the perishable. Paul also says that what is sown as a natural body will be raised as a spiritual body. And what he means by spiritual, he doesn't mean that it, it will be immaterial, but that it will be a body suited for the reign and existence of God's Holy Spirit in the world. It will be a supernatural body in the sense that it will transcend what we now consider to be our natural bodies and it will just keep getting better and better. I've shared it with you before but one of my favorite scenes in all of literature is in a children's book by C.S. Lewis in the series The Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle. And at the end, everybody dies. I mean, it's a great ending. Everybody dies and they wake up and this lion approaches. And if you're familiar with The Chronicles of Narnia, this is the lion Aslan who's a figure of Jesus. And he turns to the, to the kids who have died in a battle and he says to them, come further up and further in. And they keep going and going and running and running until they fall down in what they think is exhaustion. At least they expect to be exhausted, but upon reflection they realize we're not really exhausted. And at that moment, Aslan turns around and says to them again, further up and further in, and they just keep going. And the book ends by saying that Aslan led them on like that forever and ever. And that's not unbiblical. It is in fact the picture of the resurrection that the apostle Paul paints. What was sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What was sown natural will be raised spiritual. What was sown in weakness will be raised in power. And since God has already created various kinds of bodies and he has all power, there's no reason to suppose that we won't be resurrected because we can't fathom what our bodies will be like but even more than that, Paul says that if we are part of the kingdom of heaven, then we will bear the image of the man of heaven. There was the first man, Adam, and we bear his likeness in death. But if our faith is in Jesus, we now bear a different image as well, the image of the last Adam. Listen to what he says in verses 45 to 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being when God breathed the breath of life into him. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so, shall also, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The first Adam became a living being when God breathed the breath of life. 
But the last Adam is Jesus, who fulfills all that humanity was supposed to be. And he is a life-giving spirit in the sense that his resurrection is the ground for your resurrection. It's the assurance, the first fruit. But the Corinthians were confused. They thought that they had already achieved some kind of special spiritual state that exempted them from suffering and from correction and from discipline, or even some of them from even thinking about sin and morality. And Paul reminds them that the natural comes first and then the spiritual. Furthermore, that they have borne the image of the man of the dust, and so they must also bear the image of the man of heaven. And the point is this. It's not just that we will be like Jesus when the resurrection occurs, though that is true. Instead, a better translation of verse 49 would say, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. The man of heaven suffered, and he died following the will of God. So too, we must die to self and our sin-soaked earthly nature as we follow Jesus. Because of the Spirit's presence, we bear the likeness of Jesus, the man of heaven, and so when he returns, we will be like him, and this is all from the grace of God. And Paul closes this chapter with a great crescendo, an exultation over death, over, of Christ's victory over death. He says in verse Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the, mortal, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is your destination. Most will die, though not all. There will be some who are alive when Christ returns, but whether dead or alive, those who are in Christ will be transformed when we see him. And the perishable will put on the imperishable. The decrescendo will become a crescendo. The earthly will be done away in favor of a body fit for eternal life. And then the prophecy of Isaiah 25, 8 will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. And I love, I absolutely love what Paul does next. Because this is why the resurrection is so important in the life and thinking, in the meditation and the heart of a believer. Because Paul taunts death. He says this in Hosea 13, or he quotes Hosea 13, 14, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? It's like when a basketball player dunks on someone and then gets in their face and says, where are you at? Where are you at? And he's asking, where are you? But it's even better than that because Paul was quoting Hosea 13, 14. In Hosea 13, 14, God is preparing to judge Israel for her idolatry and sin against him. And he calls for death. 
like he's whistling for a dog to come and bring its plagues and its venoms against his people Israel. That's what the prophecy originally meant. So what Paul does, that 1 Corinthians 15 is not only taunt death, but he turns what was originally a curse of death on its head, a curse spoken against God's people. He turns it upside down because of the resurrection of Jesus. The curse is broken. Better, the curse has become a taunt. Remember when I was 22 years old and I got a phone call that my best friend had died, just didn't wake up one morning from his sleep, just gone suddenly. Remember standing in the shower and weeping and then the, the words of Paul came to my mind. And through my tears, I joined Paul, and I joined all the saints who have ever gone before us, and I joined those of you who understand what it is to lose a loved one in Christ, but, but know that it was not the end to see someone die with courage and an understanding that they are going to be with Jesus and not just going, but that one day they will rise again and I said with Paul through my tears, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? To this day, I taunt death and the curse because even though it hurts, the assurance of the resurrection of Christ is that the curse has been broken and will be totally reversed when Jesus appears. Christian, this is why the resurrection is so important. If you do not believe in the resurrection, then the fear of death will certainly dominate your life and how you live. It will dominate your thinking. How will you take risks for the kingdom of God unless you believe that even if you should die, you will only be sleeping and one day you'll hear the trumpet and you will rise again? How can you bring to him your talent? How can you bring to him your wealth right now? How can you bring to him everything that you are and think that it's worth it unless you believe that the sacrifice that you're making for him in this life will one day be repaid a thousandfold because you will rise from the dead when Jesus comes? How could you possibly stand up against a tyrannical state like our brothers and sisters who have gone before us in martyrdom or in some places around the world do right now, who tell them that they cannot preach, they cannot speak, they cannot sing the praise of Jesus, and they cannot even believe it. How could you stand up against that unless you believed that Jesus will return and when he does, I will rise again? How could you even face the temptations of tomorrow unless you believe that one day in spite of your suffering, and in spite of the decay of your body, and in spite of the inevitable fact that unless Christ returns before you die, you'll end up six feet under, like the rest of humanity. How could you even face the temptations of tomorrow unless you believed Jesus is coming, and when he comes, I will rise from the dead? This is why the resurrection is so central and so foundational to our lives as Christians. It's why we must not give up the resurrection to some vague, progressive Christianity that teaches that Jesus' death was a metaphor, that his resurrection is symbolic, and that the resurrection of the dead is taught in Scripture is merely a nice idea to keep us going. It is not that. It is the gospel which you heard and in which you believed and in which you are being saved if you continue steadfastly in the faith 
Do not let go of the gospel. Walk in the victory of the resurrection because you have the assurance that though you die, yet you will live. You should be confident in the resurrection. You'll be raised because Christ has been raised and you will be imperishable. As I've been reminding you from the beginning, this is so important because your destination determines your direction. And that's how Paul ends this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast. Don't be moved from the hope you have in the resurrection, not only of Jesus, but in the resurrection of the saints. Don't let life or our culture of materialism Don't let the comfort of contemporary American society, the pressures of your peers, or anything else shift you from your faith that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so he will also raise all those who believe in him. Only then can you abound in the work of the Lord. Paul simply means here that your labor in the Christian life is not in vain. He means that as you as you progress in the faith and as you put your effort, though it is small and is only by the grace of God and because you believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but as you continue in that faith and you put to death your sin and as you stand firm in faith in Christ and as you commit to your faith in spite of opposition against your faith and as you put your time, talent, treasure into God's kingdom and invest it in what he's doing, only then Will your efforts not be in vain because you've believed in the resurrection? This includes your progress in the faith. And if we only hope in this life, our efforts will be small because we will have a diminished view of God's grace. If our hope is in this life, then our hope will be very small and our efforts will be very small. But if our eyes are on the resurrection of Jesus, if we remember our destination is resurrection, If we remember that God's grace is not passing temporal comfort, but is indeed the resurrection to eternal life that is an eternal crescendo, then our grace, the grace we know we have from God, will be great, and therefore our labor in the Lord will abound as well. Our efforts will increase because we will understand the gospel and the grace of God correctly. As I was thinking about this, I was trying to think, how do we respond to this? How do we ask people to to respond? I I hope and it has been my prayer that you've already sensed from the Holy Spirit how you need to respond. That you already know if you've given up real hope in the resurrection of your body and you've exchanged it for some vague idea of an afterlife, that you need to repent and you need to come back to real faith in Jesus because God raised him from the dead. If he did not, your faith is useless, but he did. And because he raised Jesus, you'll be raised as well. Maybe your effort in the faith has has been small. And your answer to that effort has been that you're going to try harder. But today you've heard in the preaching of the gospel that the the answer perhaps to small effort is not greater, greater effort. But the answer to small effort is greater hope. Is greater faith in the resurrection of Jesus. And is resting in the grace of God that he will raise you from the dead. I hope the Holy Spirit has impressed that on your heart. But the only appropriate way I could think to to respond to this is that we would rejoice, 
is that we would rejoice that God has done this for us, is that we would remind ourselves not only through word but in song about what it means that the destination is set and so we're headed in the right direction. And so I wanna ask you to stand with me and we're gonna sing a song. We're gonna do an upbeat and we're gonna rejoice and it's a song maybe you're familiar with. I've taken a little bit of liberty with it to make it reflect the resurrection a little bit better. It's a song called Because He Lives and we're gonna sing and I wanna encourage you that you would express your hope for the resurrection, your hope of eternal life and your joy in the resurrected Savior by lifting your voice by raising a shout, by lifting your, your, your spirit in song to the Lord and rejoice that because he lives, he's given us a new destination and that means a new direction for our lives. It means that death is defeated. It means that victory over sin, hell and the grave have been overcome. It means that Jesus will reign forever and ever. And it means that because he's alive, we can live as we should right now. Will you lift your heart, your hands, your voices, and let's rejoice that Jesus is alive. And because he lives, we will live as well.